Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. That's actually one of my earliest memories is sitting on the couch, you know, with with my dad and sister after a meal. And I would hear this clinking coming from the other room. And, and I don't know if years had gone by or what, but eventually I figured it out. There was a big crystal vase in there with a top that was like rounded and kind of fit in with like a corked. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And my mom kept her vodka in there. And I didn't know what vodka was, probably until about middle school. But I remember being a child and going in and smelling it and being like, oh, it just smelled like rubbing alcohol, you know? So I, I just, that was, that was kind of my first memory. It wasn't a, a sight. It was more of a sound of the clinking. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. 
what happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hello, my beautiful friends. Thank you so much for joining me. You know, I feel like every story of childhood trauma is a story of abandonment. I don't think we often see it that way. We might describe our childhood in terms of abuse or manipulation or an alcoholic parent or a highly judgmental parent, whatever was true for you. But actually, every story of childhood trauma is a story of abandonment. Your parent was not there, maybe physically not there, emotionally not there. They were absent from your life. They were unsupportive. They were abandoning. You know, having kids is a choice, right? Nobody tells us we must have kids. Although, to be honest, it it does feel that way. I think most people feel that they're supposed to have kids because society says we are not whole without them. But having kids is a choice and a huge responsibility. But how many parents have kids, sometimes many kids, and then just go AWOL, like they never see them because they work all the hours or they're addicted to drugs or alcohol and they're they're just not present or they never, ever listen, understand or nurture a child emotionally. They abandon you emotionally or they're abusive physically and they're abandoning that child's right to feel safe. They're abandoning their basic duty as a parent to love, nurture and care for their child. And so whilst you might label your childhood as abusive or having a narcissistic mother or whatever it is, you were actually abandoned. You were left to fend for yourself. And that's why all of us in these toxic childhood situations feel so alone, felt so lost and so lonely. And it's why it's important to decide to be the person who is there for yourself now. We hear a lot about self-love these days, but actually self-love is just a decision to be there for yourself when nobody else is. And actually, even if you have a wonderful support network around you, you still need to make a decision to be there for yourself, to give yourself the things you need that are important to you, to put yourself first, because you deserve that. Don't let anybody make you feel that you don't deserve love, kindness, and care. And if you're not getting that from anywhere else, give it to yourself. We often feel so far away from feeling worthy of loving ourselves. But if you just think of that tiny little you that tiny little girl, little boy, so lost, so lonely and abandoned and decide actually she deserved better. He deserved better. She was beautiful. She was amazing. She didn't deserve to be abandoned and start to give her what she missed out on. If nobody ever listened to her, listen to her now. If nobody ever loved her, give her love now. 
it's actually really simple to do. You just have to decide that you're worth spending some time on. And I've got a secret to tell you. You are. Okay. (laughs) This week, we are hearing a story that is going to resonate so deeply with you in that abandonment piece of growing up. Brooklyn is the sweetest soul you will ever meet. She was so real and raw in this conversation and I could feel that even now that she's an adult, a mother with her own kids, the abandonment is still so present for her. Before we met, Brooklyn sent me her most recent family photo. There was her mum and dad, her sister and brother-in-law, her own family and all the kids, and everyone was smiling And they are what we would assume, as we do with everyone, a happy family unit. But the truth is so far from that. They're still a functioning family. They still hang out. Everyone would say they were a nice family. But the reality is, Brooklyn's mum was an alcoholic from the very beginning. And this was a secret. Brooklyn could tell no one about the chaos that was unfolding every day in her home, even to her closest friends. Her mum was not there physically or emotionally. Her dad was controlling, angry and triggered. He was not there emotionally or able to offer protection and care and love. And Brooklyn spent her life lurching from one crisis to another daily, inside this chaotic family home. No safety, just fear. Trying to save her mum, trying not to trigger her dad, and it impacted everything about her life. Please join me now for Brooklyn's story. Brooklyn, welcome to the podcast. I'm so grateful that you reached out to let me know that you have a story to share and there's a lot going on in this story. You've had to deal with some incredibly difficult dynamics in your family for your entire life, highly dysfunctional parents, very disconnected and abandoning parents, so much chaos and absolutely no support for you as a child or at any point in your life. Can I take you back to when you're a small child? You describe the clinking of crystal that would often come from a room somewhere in your house, a noise that initially puzzled you. What was that clinking sound? Yeah, so that's actually one of my earliest memories is sitting on the couch, you know, with with my dad and sister after a meal. And I would hear this clinking coming from the other room. And and I don't know if years had gone by or what, but eventually I figured it out. There was a big crystal vase in there with a top that was like rounded and kind of fit in with like a corked bottom. And my mom kept her vodka in there. And I didn't know what vodka was probably until about middle school. But I remember being a child and going in and smelling it and being like, oh, God, it just smelled like rubbing alcohol, you know. So I, I just, that was, that was kind of my first memory. It wasn't a, a sight. It was more of a sound of the clinking. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. And so did you feel connected with your mum from an early age? Was there a connection there? There was. There was a bond with us, but there it was more like I always worried about her. It it wasn't more where we had like these peaceful, playful moments. I don't remember her playing with me on the floor, but I remember always wanting to cling to her and sit on her lap and smell her hair and and have her hold me. Oh, I just loved having her hold me. But I it was more of like a sense of of worry more than than a connection. Yeah. 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 I totally understand that. And I mean, as little girls, we we do crave that connection, don't we, with our mums and and when we when we don't get that, it does change a lot of things for us. Do you remember a time when she wasn't drinking? Because obviously she was drinking from a young age. Was there a time where you remember that that wasn't present? So it's funny. I have a fleeting memory of my mom volunteering at my fifth grade writing class. She came in and proofread a bunch of stories for my class. And and this was during the years where she was asleep every night, like after school, just asleep on the couch every day. And that was mixed with raging fights and loud noises at night so you kind of figured out that she was sick but nobody really talked about it 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 was it was yelled out in rage um you know you're you're drinking you're an alcoholic you're drinking too much by my dad so you kind of put the pieces together so yeah that was the one fleeting memory growing up but then when i was 13 i i got the opportunity to live with her for a year as a completely sober woman well, she was on antidepressants, but yeah, she was not drinking. She was not doing anything. And I had her for almost a year. We just lived together, her and I. And then after that, she was she was drinking again for five more years. So it was that yeah. one year. I cling to those memories for sure. And can you tell us about your dad? What do you remember about your dad as a little girl? Oh, gosh, my dad, he... So he was either yelling a command at us or he was making fun of something or someone. And he wanted he wanted everyone's support in, in teasing. He was a big bully. And I didn't realize my dad was a bully until I was in my 30s. Wow. And I kind of saw it. And and I, you know, growing up, you think your your dad's like the one who's right about everything, the way he acted. He was so arrogant and I was like oh okay he knows everything his his ideas are the best and he would even tell me assume everyone in the world is is dumber than you are that was one thing he would always tell me assume that everyone is more stupid than you are and I was like wait that doesn't sound right and then he he said another thing to me where I I was very young and I wanted to give away my toys and he said what are you mother Teresa and I was like is that a bad thing like things <laughs> were confusing to me because I, I was born so giving and generous, I think, naturally. And he is the opposite. So I, I think early on, I just kind of knew that something was off. But at the same time, he was my protector from my mom. He 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 kind of protected us from her and saved her. And so it was very, it was difficult. I, I loved and hated him in a way. And I still do. He's still in my life in the, in the same way. Yeah. And 
it's interesting when you say that you're in your 30s before you realize that he was a bully. It's it's so weird, isn't it, that we we don't see yeah. those things earlier. It's just because it's always been that way and it's just how it is, you know. This is dad and and he knows everything. And so your mum is drinking, your dad is abusive and controlling. What was a typical morning like in your home? Can you tell us what you saw daily as a child? Yeah, so the mornings were super high adrenaline. And even now, my dad admitted, I think in therapy, he said, I I did this on purpose. I would bang the doors, boom, 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 get up. What's taking so long? Brush your teeth, get out of the shower. Like every possible thing you could imagine to rush, rush, rush. And he admitted in therapy, you know, I I did that to get my adrenaline going. I was nervous about work. I had to put myself up and it was at such a cost. Sorry. Yeah. We all hated that. We all hated the the rush in the morning. And and there was a flip side to that. So my mom and my sister and I, there was a few years where she would be up and and my mom would be up when we got home from school and we would watch Oprah at four o'clock and right at five o'clock, you know, the garage door goes up and we would cringe because my dad was home. Yeah, because because that energy that comes home or starts the day with your dad is so toxic, isn't it? And everybody is just waiting for what's going to happen next. It's like high alert, isn't it? Yeah, and it just makes everybody is so uncomfortable and there can't be any conversation between anybody. And it's just, we were, my sister and I, we couldn't talk to each other. We were just sent off to school in such a sense of like fight or flight is, is how I can kind of describe it. And I think the worst part of it is we didn't know that our bodies were reacting like, like that. You know what I mean? Like now in 2023, we talk about anxiety, we talk about depression, we talk about fight or flight all the time. But, you know, 25 years ago, nobody said any of those words. We didn't, no. we didn't know what that was. No, we didn't. We didn't have any understanding of that at all. And so how did your morning, every morning, how did that affect your ability to function well at school? Gosh, I have very limited memories of school. And I think it's because I was so preoccupied thinking about my mom while I'm sitting in the classroom. And this is, my oldest is in kindergarten. And I'm back in those classrooms for parent-teacher conferences. And it just brings back so many memories. But I still I still can't grab my memories from elementary school. But I remember, I just remember not being able to perform well. And I, I could never do a worksheet. I could never focus. I could never remember anything. I couldn't study right. I I feel that a child's brain is truly affected by the repetitive trauma or somebody yelling at them every day. So I think my brain function was not great as a school-age child, but I was smart. I I was, I did go in there and, and I did kind of like have an advantage. I was very good at reading and I I would constantly read. And I think that was a good outlet for me. Definitely. Cause I'm like, what did I do with my time? I didn't sit around. I didn't play with toys. I, there was no screen. So, and I think I just looked at books all the time. 
all the time. I was just looking at a book, trying to get out of what was going on around me. Yeah. And, and I've heard not that. Retaining it, not retaining yeah. it at the same time. Yeah. I've heard that from a few people yeah. that, are, that the books were an escape for them. You know, it was, yeah. it could have been like going into another world and just blocking everything that was going on. So yeah. as a sensitive child myself, I know that we, we have a lot of emotion and with parents in chaotic homes, often those parents can't deal with the emotions. How were emotions dealt with in your home? They weren't allowed. So my dad, my dad kind of ruled everybody's mood. And if he was in a bad mood, nobody else could really speak or complain. And anytime you showed any sense of feeling or a cry, like a natural cry as a little girl, I was told to be quiet, you know, or I was laughed at. My sister would laugh at me too, to kind of gang up on me. And I just, I remember a specific moment when I was very young where my parents were getting violent and my mom's foot was bleeding. And I looked down and her sock was half covered in blood and I screamed so deeply. And I remember after my scream, I was like, okay, that was a bit much, but I'm really sad. And I wanted everybody to know that. And my parent, my, my dad and my sister laughed at me and they laughed at me for a long time. And they, you know, that would come up years later as like making fun of me. So yeah, bullies, you know, bullying behavior. Yeah. And often when there is that dynamic, you know, one child will hop onto the side of that abusive parent because that's their way of dealing with it, right? So Yeah, so they, that's their way of connecting. Yeah. So you know, your sister was was taking the side of the bully and and you were just a sensitive kid who was trying to cope with everything. And there's so much going on there, isn't there? Are you speaking to anybody about this or how heavy were the secrets that you were holding on to? Yeah, I wasn't allowed to say anything to anybody. I was I was close to a neighbor across the street and we were together every day. And I grew up later, we spoke in our 20s and she said, yeah, I knew your mom drank. And I was never allowed to say anything to anybody when I was a kid. And I didn't know that everybody knew about it. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. It's hard to hold it in as a child. And I think that's, I think that is very traumatizing. And I think if my dad would have just said, you know, go talk to somebody about it. It's okay. Oh, that would have been such a game changer just to be able to, to express it. And I even think now, like, I think back at my teachers and guidance counselors and they sh- they should have stepped in and I'm not I'm not talking about like elementary school this is middle school and high school people should have stepped in and and I later on it's funny I never made the connection but I later on became a high school teacher and maybe that's subconsciously I wanted to be there to help you know the the teenager that needed help in me yeah Absolutely. It is so much having to hold those secrets in, isn't it? Were you an unwell child at all? And for me, I know holding yeah. holding things in, like I had endless sore throats. I was always mm-hmm. running temperatures and having viruses and Yeah. 
So I always had digestive problems. I always had stomach aches and I always had earaches. And I remember we would, I would always get them when we went on vacation. And my parents were the type of people who we would go on a trip and we would talk about that trip all year, even though every day was miserable. We had a trip coming up, so it's fine. You know, so these vacations were a big deal. So I get there and I have an earache. And when you have an earache, it affects everything. Mm -hmm. And I remember holding in the pain and not wanting to say anything to them. And I was, I would suffer in silence. And I remember suffering in silence all, all the time, all the time as a kid. I didn't want to bother anybody. They were already so miserable. Why would I, you know, make it worse? We finally got to this vacation and I would ruin it by having to go to the doctor. And, and there was, you know, one or two times where I had to say something because I was just in tears. And I think we were in like Virginia Beach walking down the boardwalk and I couldn't even walk. I was in so much pain. And we went to the doctor there and my dad, and I, it's funny, I don't have many memories, but I cling to these words that he says. And he, he would, he said, it's always something with you. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, it just sticks. It just sticks to you. Isn't that interesting that a parent, yeah. isn't that interesting that a parent who is totally dysfunctional oh. and, and then there's a, there's a mother there who's totally dysfunctional, a sister who's also being bullying behavior and, and you're targeted as the one that's the problem. <laughs> you kind of go like, oh yeah, that's, that's not messed up at all. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it, it's, it it still happens today and we are such a close family still and my mom as well and she she is sober for 15 years now and I'm still learning how to navigate my family you know I'm still the scapegoat my sister's still a bully she has two two boys and she's raising my my nephews as bullies and my dad he's finally at 68 years old he's finally figuring out through my nephew's behavior okay, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I was a little bit of a bully. And it's funny how how it takes time and, and life lessons for some people to truly realize their effect on people because he just had no idea. Yeah, I think, gosh, especially males of that older generation, you know, they're living. Yes. I mean, I think I think we lived incredibly unconsciously in the past anyway, but especially for men, you know, they was they were encouraged to disconnect from feelings for a start. So there was just so little connection to the consequences of what they were doing. And and it's interesting that it, in a later point in life they can kind of see that they're getting a little mm-hmm. glimpse into the effects of that and so that that constant sort of terror that you must have had around whether your mum would survive the day for whether she was going to be safe. I mean, that's a lot for a little girl to take on. How has that manifested for you over the years? Is it anxiety, a lasting? Oh, gosh, yeah. It's, it's in my bones. Like I, so... I, I'm not in therapy, but I have seen therapists and I I have realized that there was a repetitive situation that would happen every single night as a child. And it was 
a decade of this where we would be sitting on the couch, peaceful, quiet, watching a show. My mom would have gone to bed. It was my dad and my sister downstairs with me and there would be a bang. And it was like sometimes a loud bang, sometimes just a series of small bangs. Sometimes, you know, the door would slam and my dad would just have a knee-jerk reaction and say, get upstairs. And and I would always run upstairs because I was always, I don't know, <laughs> I, was, I was faster. I, I would always get up there soon, the soonest. And my sister would try. I, I think over time she stopped, but I was always the one up there. And I never knew what I was walking into. So that is something that's like, God, you're facing your biggest fear night after night after night. And it was, it was so totally random. She could be peeing in the closet. She could be totally fine peeing in the bathroom. She could be, you know, have a bloody gash on her head. And I would have to go downstairs and tell my dad and know that I would just open up another can of worms and it would be hours of yelling and chaos. So there was never really peace in, in my soul. I I could never rest as a child. So now as an adult with like a seven-year-old, a four-year-old and a baby, I, I'm always worried about things happening. And not only that, my brain, I I feel like my brain is damaged and I feel like I will have a peaceful moment. And then my brain cuts to something violent happening or a natural disaster happening or a shooting happening or anything like at, at all moments of the day, because my days are happy and peaceful. So these thoughts are occurring often. However, I have gotten better over recent years, but I, I do, I made the connection a few years ago from those repetitive moments of going up into my mom's bedroom to now always thinking about something bad happening. I mean, it's just, it's crazy how it follows you. And, and I remember sitting and I, I think I was maybe 10 years old. And I remember sitting in my room, I was sitting cross-legged in the middle of my room on the floor. And I had a moment where I thought this is going to affect me as an adult. And that's something like, it's so funny that I would think that, but I think about that moment a lot because it, it it has yeah and I just want to acknowledge that that little girl because I I totally relate to that it's it's just this underlying terror isn't it you just never know what's going to mm. happen even in those moments where you think it's peaceful you know it's not going to last you know that that something's going to happen and it changes your nervous system so strongly and those effects do last a lifetime and did the chaos and the secrets did that generate a freeze response in you as well did you find yourself in situations over the years since since being a child where you just would freeze yeah I mean I feel like I was always frozen I I don't like when I think about fate or flight I think about the flight because I always felt like I wanted to run away, but I, but I guess I froze. I mean, I, I would, I would 
not be able to breathe. I would sweat. I would turn bright red. I would shake. I would feel like I was going to pass out. I would become completely, I don't know, an out of body. Like I, I would hear myself speak, but I would be like watching myself, hear myself speak, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Total panic attack. Always when I, when I would be speaking to people, and this was, this happened a lot in college, but there was a one, one catalyst for that. It kind of spiraled from here was I was in 11th grade and I had to present and give, you know, read a paper to the class. And I stood up there and I froze. There you go. I froze. (laughs) So I was, yes, I froze like a deer in headlights and I couldn't breathe and I panicked. And in my twenties, I went to a therapist and he said, you know, you have panic disorder. And I was like, okay, how does that go away? (laughs) Because that's something that's just in my, in my nervous system, as you Mm. said, it's, it has been trained that way. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it is training. I mean, if you, if you just think about it simply, if you had a childhood where even just every night there was going to be a really loud noise and you didn't know when that was going to happen, even if there was nothing else associated with it, you're training yourself to be on high alert and, and that changes, it changes your nervous system forever. It's like rewiring it. I know that things got a lot worse for your mum when you were Mm -hmm. around 13. Can you tell us? about that time? Yes. So I was in eighth grade and my mom had been drinking so severely for the past two years. Middle school was such a blur. She she was so sick. And, and my dad moved her out to an apartment and he explained to my sister and I that she was just going to drink herself to death and he didn't want us to be around to watch it. And we just we're like okay you know our hands were were up we were like fine let's it's fine you know we were just so sick of watching her self-destruct every day and I remember going to her apartment and sorry this is really hard yeah okay but it was so traumatic because I truly thought that I would never see her again when I left that apartment and I was I just think it was so cruel of my dad to do that to us when he knew he he wouldn't let her die. He was going to get her into a hospital. And he did about two or three days later, but he really made my sister and I think that she was going to die. So that was really, really, really traumatic. And I never, I never even talked to anybody about that. I never processed it. I think I just went straight from that to being so happy that she got into a rehab facility and then I went from there to living with her for a year sober and I never really processed how messed up that was that I had accepted that she was gonna die it was really something that took years for me to realize wow that actually happened yeah yeah and so was that the first time that she went to rehab yes that was the first time she went to rehab And then I spent my freshman year of high school with her living in another house, still going to the same school. But, you know, I went home after swimming practice and we would watch American Idol and I would fall asleep on the couch and I would just feel guilty for falling asleep early because I just wanted to spend the most amount of time that I could with her sober. They didn't know how long it was going to last. 
And then at the end of the school year, my dad asked her to come back and live back at home, which I know was terrible. It was a terrible idea. But he said, you know, we'll go on a cruise. We'll see how we get along. And I didn't realize it at the time, but later I found out that my mom had a glass of wine on the cruise and she spent five more years drunk every day after that. Every day. It was heartbreaking. So then I finished high school with her, you know, a somewhat functioning alcoholic. She was just super annoying, very combative, very mean all the time. I would have people over sometimes. She wanted me to have prom pictures there because we had a pool in the backyard. And I said, I'll have people here if you do not drink. She said, I won't. And then, of course, she does. So you can see in my prom pictures, my eyes are all puffy from crying. But, you know, that all all because of a cruise and a glass of wine, she just missed all of high school. I went off to college. And when I was a sophomore in college, she went to rehab again. And I found a letter, actually. Randomly, I found a letter that I wrote to her when she was in rehab in 2007 or eight. And I, I said I was proud of her. But at that point, I realized I was so disconnected from her. I wasn't, you know, I didn't, I was off to college. My, my life was with her was done. You know, we had missed her our time together which was sad oh yeah oh yeah tell me about that time when she was sober for that was it a a year that she was sober it was like 10 months 10 months and it must have been so wonderful to have your mum back at that time god it was so nice she she had a little dog and she was so happy and she went to her AA meeting. She had people, you know, friends. And my dad never, never let her have friends. And she's a social person. She's very likable and she enjoys talking to people. It's hard for her because she grew up with, basically grew up with my dad. She met him at 14 and he's very critical and beats down her self-esteem and all that. But when I saw her for those 10 months, I just, I kind of saw who she really was and the possibility that she could be. Yeah, it, it, it was bittersweet because I, I, I kind of grieved the mom that I missed out on. I was like, this was you all along. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, it's, it's so sad. I hadn't realized that your parents have been together from such a young age and yeah. that your mom is this sociable person and she wasn't allowed to even to be who she was in no, the marriage. And, no, sociable, beautiful, and she just destroyed her herself. I think she tried to destroy herself to get my dad angry or something. And I, part of her drinking was a way to have my dad not be able to control her. She was unable to be controlled when she was drunk. And my dad controlled every part of her life, what she ate, what time she woke up, who she spoke to, everything, everything. And I think being drunk was kind of like an F you, I'll be drunk. But it it, it came at such a cost. Absolutely. Years wasted, years lost. Mm, and it's so sad. It's so sad when I I see, you know, this beautiful, vivacious, sociable lady and she's actually 
made a break you know she's she's living her own life there for just such a short time and then she got dragged back into that relationship it's so sad isn't it I guess it's again it's the way that we are wired you know over so many years she she was so used to the way that that marriage was functioning I suppose and there was probably hope there you know that it could be different but yeah yeah and there there was you know they do love each other and I think oh I don't know if my dad loves her I I think he he feels like he couldn't let her live without him he feels like he takes care of her and that she needs him but you know this just reminds me of a a story when I this this was shortly after she returned home to live with my dad again and started drinking it was the first valentine's day that she had returned home after living away and she had a really severe suicide attempt and i was out with a girlfriend and she called me and i was in the car with her and i had to pretend to my girlfriend that everything was okay like okay yeah i'll be home soon yeah yeah yeah. meanwhile on the phone my mom says i have a knife to my wrist i'm holding my dog you know, we're going to get in the garage and I'm going to turn the car on. And I'm like, well, okay, don't do anything. You know, I'll, I'll be home in 10 minutes. And she was upset that my dad didn't wish her a happy Valentine's day. And I don't know where my dad was. He could have been with another woman. I don't even know, but she was at home and I had to rush home. And I remember opening up that garage door and I just had flashbacks of being a little girl and opening the bedroom door. Like, what am I going to find? What what horror am I going to walk into? I think I was in a freeze mode or a disassociation. I don't know. I was numb. I walked in and she was sitting at the kitchen table holding her dog. The knife was there. And I just looked at her and I said, oh, you're pathetic. Why? Why? How could you do this to me? And I finally spoke up for myself. I said, what? how could you do this to me? This is so traumatic for me. And she's in a state where she's like, what about me? What about me? So it was, it was, it, it was toxic the moment she walked back into that house and she had to start drinking again. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule it's surprisingly affordable too. connect with a credentialed therapist by phone video or online chat all from the comfort of your home visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10 percent on your first month that's better help h-e-l-p yeah oh my goodness that's it, it the thing is that it's all it's it's always you trying to save your mom and and you mm-hmm. like you're in a car with somebody you're not even telling them what's happening you're not telling anybody and so you're always 
alone in this going in to save her and and that's it's just so much to deal with isn't it yeah it was a lot of loneliness and disconnection but I I do feel an appreciation for connection now as as an adult and as a mother of three kids I connection is number is a number one priority for me and my kids so maybe without that disconnect I wouldn't even it wouldn't even be a thought for me I would just be raising, I would just be raising my kids how I was raised and not care. But gosh, I put so much effort into doing the right things for my kids, reacting in the, in the most helpful way. And yeah, it's, it's a huge part of my life trying to be a good mom. Mm -hmm. And maybe I wouldn't be one if I, if I had a good one. Right. Yes, absolutely. And so you talk about your mom committing or or attempting or talking about suicide was suicide a part of your life growing up yes it was a I mean it was a huge part of my inner world I never spoke about it but it was a thought almost daily to me I I thought about it It was like a fleeting thought every day and there were some days where I was like okay maybe I maybe I really could do this but what what would keep me back what would hold me back is I actually felt bad for my dad (laughs) believe it or not the bully I felt so bad for that man I I was like he has to deal with this woman who is just a terror every day and he has to come home and cook us dinner and do all the stuff while she is either yelling at us or slamming doors or passed out on the couch and I thought can't do that to him but no, I, I thought about it all the time, just mostly because I felt like as a kid, I was so sad. But also I thought about it as a teenager because I could not function. Like I felt like I couldn't function properly in society if I couldn't speak to people normally have without having that panicky feeling. And there was a moment when I was a senior in, in high school and I had to just recite a silly poem in front of the class but I had such a fear that I really considered killing myself over this presentation, as dumb as that sounds. But yeah, I remember, you know, driving around one night and I avoided, I avoided, I, I skipped this one class for weeks. <laughs> I would skip it and feel guilty and shameful and skip it. And I'm like, oh, how am I going to get out of this presentation? And I'm just you know, I'm driving by my parents, my grandparents' gravesite, and I'm really asking for their strength. And they must have given it to me because I'm here and I, I did it. It wasn't that bad. But, you know, that wasn't the, the last time that I would be like embarrassed in front of, you know, people, public speaking. It is the one thing in my life that I, I feel that I won't ever conquer. It's always going to be a problem for me, I feel like. Yeah. Well, I think most people struggle with public speaking, but oh my gosh, I just feel for you so much being, (laughs) you know, that, that, that panic, you know, that deep panic and you're avoiding and avoiding and you're driving past your grandparents' grave. I mean, it's so extreme, isn't it? It's, it's, it's just so, you're just so lost. Yes. And I, I find that even as an adult, I 
in times of stress, I think in extremes. And I think that's, that's kind of something that comes with being a child of an alcoholic. I really go to the extreme and I, I did it even back then. And sometimes I even do it now. I think of worst case scenario and you know, it happens all the time. Teenagers commit suicide all the time. And I understand it. They don't think it through. Things seem so unbearable in the moment. And I'm just, God, I'm so grateful. I didn't, I didn't really have the balls to do it. I couldn't do it, you know, as miserable and as sad and as disconnected as I was. Yeah. And as we said before, there's nobody there. I think- Kids who have suicidal ideation, there is nobody there. There's nobody there for them. You only just need that one person. And if you don't have that one person, then there's no outlet for it. Did you seek out a counsellor at high school? No. I mean, I so I got called into the guidance counsellor because I was skipping so much school. And my dad was in there and he was going through the dates and he saw, oh, you skipped this date. Why'd you skip that date? And I noticed it was the day after Valentine's Day. And I I said, oh, remember, you know, mom tried to kill herself that night and guidance counselor sitting right there, just dumbstruck, staring at me. And my dad's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, you know, and, and nobody followed up. The guidance counselor never called me in to say, hey, you know, let's talk about this because I was not strong enough to go to him or her and say, this is what's going on in my house. Well, I was years of conditioning, years of don't say anything. You know, we could get in trouble. Mom could get arrested. Never, never say anything to anybody. So yeah, yeah, I, I wish someone would have come to me, but that never happened. Yeah. And It's so true, isn't it? Like it's very hard for a kid to reach out, especially when they're in such a disconnected, dissociative place where it's really survival. You're just trying to survive every day. It's very hard for for that kid to reach out to anybody because you don't have any self-worth to do that. You don't think that you deserve it or that it's something that's available to you. And you feel like you're wasting everyone's time. Yes, you're wasting everybody's time. Absolutely. And what a shame that that counsellor, my goodness, you know, like what (laughs) what are they doing that they don't look and go, oh, my gosh, this this girl has a a mother who's trying to commit. Like there's a lot going on there. Absolutely crazy, isn't it? How many people can let you down in your life? Because that's what it comes down to, isn't it? that nobody, there's just not one person that's stepped up and helped you out, put a hand out to help you. And I even Mm. think, I even think about my English teacher who saw me panic in front of the class. She never approached me. I, you know, she did approach me, but she said, you were nervous. And I said, yeah. And that was it. Mm. Why was I nervous? Why did I have such a strong reaction? And everybody else was okay. You know? Yeah. I I think there's a lot of people in every profession and that includes teachers who just don't have the tools for that they don't even know they don't even know their own lives so it's very hard for them to help help others right I know that your dad was verbally abusive and he body shamed you didn't he yes oh gosh yeah yeah so there's a running joke in my family where you know my mom had a gorgeous face but she had thick legs and it was like a kitschy little 
like rhyming I'm not gonna say the name but it was like it was a little rhyme that we would say growing up and apparently I inherited the legs too so I have bigger legs than most of the women in my family and my dad would always point that out you know always point that out and I remember he came to one lacrosse game and I said how did I do and he said oh good you know your legs look big in the skirt and oh god I hated that man sometimes like why would you say that to a teenage girl who's literally thinking about their body every moment every moment their lives mm-hmm. they're thinking about how they look so yeah it wasn't it wasn't great and then I I carried that into skipping gym class because we had a uniform and I did not want to wear shorts and so I skipped and skipped and skipped and I skipped And I skipped and I figured I could have made it up at the end of the year. And my friend who skipped with me, her gym teacher said she could make it up. But my gym teacher said I could not make it up and I had to do summer school. So I had to go home and tell my parents that I couldn't walk at my graduation. And because I failed gym (laughs) and it was all because of my insecurities and that was devastating for my parents. They couldn't watch me walk at my graduation. It was a big deal. Yeah. So they were super disappointed. And so you just see this crazy cycle, right? Your dad's body shaming you. You skip gym class, then you can't graduate, and then they're angry about it. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's crazy stuff. It's crazy yeah. stuff. And how awful for a father to speak to a daughter that way I mean it happens in so many homes but but what is that about I mean imagine doing that to a child like you Mm -hmm. say I mean or or a teen like you say I mean it's hard being a teen because your body is changing and having somebody there just to point out the things that you're already insecure about I mean it's just it's all wrong isn't it I just don't think and men especially, fathers especially, they just have no idea a lot of the time of how deeply these things cut. Right. Yes. And it, they're, the criticism, it just it sits like a brick. And I don't think he realized that. And maybe he did and, and he enjoyed it. I don't know. I, I, I see that my dad has a lot of narcissistic tendencies where he he enjoys seeing other people fail or mess up or embarrass themselves or feel bad. And then I, I see moments where he's not like that. So it's very complicated. Like I said, it's Mm -hmm. a love hate relationship, but yeah, I mean, the criticism in my house was constant. So that feeling of being judged sits with me all the time. And I, I don't, I don't think that that helps with my fear of public speaking. I think that's the root of it. I feel like I'm constantly being judged. And, you know, my sister now, she is the, she's a perfectionist. I think she carried the trauma to her adult life and she is a perfectionist to a T. Everything has to be perfect. Mm. You know, a trip to Disney World has to be perfect, perfect, perfect pictures, perfectly planned, perfect outfits. Everything has to her looks are perfect. And I think that's how she settled with with the the trauma. And with me, I'm not that way. I I feel like I'm sitting with a lot of 
neurotic behavior surrounding trying to be a good mom and anxiety. I think that's kind of how the trauma has presented itself in me. Not perfectionism like her, but. Yeah. And looking at your dad, when you say he he can be so judgmental and, and nasty and mean, and yet there's another mm-hmm. side to him. Often he's doing that because he was judged himself. You take that on and it becomes a part of you. And it, that's the cycle, right? I mean, that's the cycle of of trauma being passed down. So we're all, we all deal with whether it's through perfectionism or whatever it is you know Mm. it's it's coming through us in some way did you ever get to a point as a teen where you just kind of rebelled yeah yeah definitely I was lying to my parents about where I was all the time because I was always told no you can't do this no you can't do that they never trusted me and I didn't respect them. They were showing me that they were complete morons and I had zero respect for them. So I did not care about like, you know, lying to them. I was not grow I did not grow up in a house where integrity was even a word. Like, you know, my dad was a liar to everybody. We were taught to lie to people about my mom. So lying to my parents about where I was was not a big deal. But it was it was met with a lot of being caught. I was caught underage drinking. Like I didn't have a drinking problem, but I was at a party where I shouldn't have been. So it was a lot of like just getting this negative attention, but you know, nobody pays attention otherwise. Who was the first person you ever told that your mom was an alcoholic? Oh, so I went to a sleepaway camp in middle school for the first time. It was two weeks sleepaway camp and I think my dad sent us there because my mom was having such a spiral because it was very expensive and he, he normally wouldn't shell out the cash for this, but we spent two weeks away and it was paradise. And I remember the girls and I were all sitting on our bunks and I was 12 years old. And I, I was so scared to say this about my mom to these girls, but we were all sharing things about our moms. And I don't even remember what I said, but I said something like, my mom drinks a lot. And I barely remember it, but I just, I remember being so scared after I said it. And I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to find out. And everybody signed like a, a poster at the end of camp and somebody wrote, good luck with your mom or something or something about my mom. And I had to, I had to throw it in the trash. I had to trash it because if I had brought that home, they would have known that I had said something to my campmates about her. So, you know, it was it was good to get it out, but it's I don't think it helped me because I didn't say anything else until I was a senior in high school. And my friend had just picked me up from my house and my mom was chasing after us running down the driveway or across the lawn in her robe in the middle of the afternoon and I turned to him and I said I'm sorry if my mom's an alcoholic and he said I know and that was like an out-of-body experience I was like wow did I just say that I can't believe I just said that so I think now as an adult it's very like I don't know it helps me to talk about it because I wasn't allowed to talk about it as a kid yeah absolutely I mean it's just like a forbidden secret but yeah. it's in your face every day. I mean, it's not a, a secret that happened once 
10 years ago and you've got to just keep that a, a lid on that. It's like your entire life is right. getting absolutely blown up daily, but you can't mention it to an, anybody. I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, it, it's yeah, gonna, I mean, is it going to be forever? Yeah. And I remember never feeling, I never knowing how to act. Like I, I was always sad and depressed, but I could never act sad and depressed as a kid. So I was always very uncomfortable in my skin. And I, I still am sometimes to this day, I'm still figuring out who I am and how I, how I should be acting because I was always told to either shut up and be quiet. Don't speak about this. Don't speak about that. So I really, I, I could not settle into my own being. I, I didn't know how to act around people. Yeah. yeah I totally 100% understand that because you've got to, you, you've got to be something. You right. you don't even know who you are. So you've got to try and be something and you don't really know what that is. I totally relate to that. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to have a personality as a, as a young child. And mm. I have a, a four-year-old daughter and she's she's had a personality since she was a baby and I just love to watch her blossom and do these funny and weird things and be loud and at the same time it kind of cuts me because I'm like I I wasn't allowed to be this way yeah yeah and it's just allowing her to be her for her life whereas you weren't ever allowed to do that and so yeah it's total shutdown isn't it was it a was it a relief when you went away to college or how did it feel to leave your family? It was a relief. Yeah, it was a relief. I skipped a lot of class. It was what I knew. I was coming from my senior year of high school. I was so, I was the most depressed I was ever in my life, my senior year of high school. So I went to college. I drank a lot. I did not go to class. I was put on academic probation my first semester. And I I came back from that. I graduated with a 3.8 with a degree to teach high school. And, but college was miserable for me. I, I was always scared and nervous. Oh, I have this presentation coming up. And, you know, there were a few occasions where I presented in front of the class and I was obviously panicking, obviously having a panic attack. Like, embarrassing for everybody in the room and still I did not quit I graduated I did all of these presentations and I even more so because you're trying to have a degree in teaching so you're always up in front of the class and I every time I did it I thought I have to be better this time because I've been practicing I have to be better you know, my hair is perfect this time. I'm not going to be insecure about my hair. Or, or, you know, I like my outfit this time. Let's focus on that. And my body would just betray me every single time, every time. And I never got better at it. But I, I finally realized it is ingrained in me from the trauma. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. My heart goes out to that, that girl standing in front of the class and never giving up. Never giving up because it's like a fight. It's a fight with your own body. The anxiety, the panic that sets in, it's just a fight constantly, isn't it? I mean, it's. Yeah. And when you're done with it, you feel like the worst person on the planet. You want to, you want to crawl into a hole and die. You feel so ashamed and 
and just embarrassed. Like, how am I going to show up tomorrow? You know, and I don't know if that was good for my, my nervous system. I probably shouldn't have done that, but I did. And it, it took a really, really, really long time to figure out why my body was doing this, why mm. this, this is happening. And, you know, I'm explaining it now to you, but it took a while to put the pieces. My twenties were a complete decade of confusion. You know, why am I so uncomfortable talking to people? Why am I so anxious all the time? And it, it is a real eye opener when you have children and you realize, wow, you kind of, you're brought back to your own childhood and you're like, this is why, this is why you don't think about it in your twenties, but you do think about it when you have your own kids for sure. Yeah. And that's the perfect explanation, isn't it? Because we don't, we're so conditioned to, this is just life. We don't have any understanding of well, this is this was an absolute nightmare <laughs> because we're yeah. just in it and 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 just the expectation you you just keep going because you're still trying to follow all the rules and that's the thing isn't it when we're those sort of people we're sensitive people we just want to do the right thing some people will rebel and just chuck it all in and say I'm not doing any of it but those of us that stick around and just keep trying to do things by the rules and there's so much to carry there's so yeah. much heaviness isn't there with that you met your now husband at some point mm-hmm. we can often manifest in a partner the same toxic traits that we experience in our parents is this true for you it's completely the opposite i married someone who is completely the opposite of my father and it's funny because I thought that I I wasn't that smart. I thought I would end up with someone who's controlling and manipulative. But no, my husband's wonderful. He's patient. He's funny. He does not talk down to me. He's never said one bad word about me, even during a fight. And, he, you know, he puts up with my dad. <laughs> he's put up with my dad since we were 25. And he's patient with him, too. And there have been instances where they've had arguments on my behalf because my husband will stick up for me. But, you know, I, I was super lucky to find my husband because he's the complete opposite of my dad. Oh, that's so wonderful. And I love that he steps in and has your back. I mean, that must mm-hmm. just be, that must be incredible for you to, to have that person now who's always on your side. Yeah, yeah, coming from having nobody in my childhood to have someone who just knows everything, accepts everything, supports me, we support each other. We have three great kids. It it is like a dream life and I and I think back to when I was sitting in the middle of my room like this is going to affect me. I also had a thought of you know, the second half of my life has to be better. It has to be wonderful. If I'm going to put up with this, the yeah. second half of my life has to be good. So I had that thought as a child and it it has come true. It's completely true. So I'm very lucky. Yeah. I love that. It's so beautiful. So you've got three kids, a beautiful marriage. You describe yeah. yourself as an entirely new person in the past five years. What do you think has been changing for you? 
I figured out who I am. I figured out that I don't have to people please and I don't have to get people to like me. I don't have to, you know, conform to how people think that I should act. And I think the pandemic really kind of kickstarted that. My sister and I did not see eye to eye on the whole mask thing for our children. So, you know, I realized that I I have certain opinions and I am strong enough to actually voice them now. And the strength came from my kids. <laughs> you know, when 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 you need to stick up for your child, you will dive down deep and you will find the strength and you will calm yourself, you know, take a few deep breaths. If I'm scared, I got to do it anyway. It's for my kids. And I think that really has forced me to grow. I found my voice. I'm not a scared little child anymore who has to hide everything. I, I can speak up and it's not going to be the end of the world. Yeah. And that's just practice, isn't it? Once you start down that path, and like you say, we can do so much for our kids that we can't do for ourselves. So mm-hmm. you start down that path and you get stronger and and more aware. Can you tell us about the letter that your mum received in recent years? Yes. Yeah, so my mom received a letter a couple of years ago describing that my dad was having an affair, that was eight years long and how he had been involved in videotaping people doing sexual things in his car that was parked in their garage at the time, you know, that his grandkids were driving around in. It was very disturbing, very disturbing. And my mom called us right away and she said, I got this letter in the mail, you know, I'll text it to you. So I'm reading it and I'm feeling sick to my stomach because this, this woman is, is saying things about my dad that I truly believe to be true because I don't know, she, she said that he was very manipulative and she, she really thought about suicide because of him and he was intimidating her and, and it, it was really, really a dark letter. And I and I, I had a feeling I knew who this woman was because there was a random message on Facebook of a year prior that said, your husband's in a relationship with me. And my mom tried to respond and this woman disappeared. So, you know, we had a feeling that we knew who it was. And a few days go by and I go over to my parents' house and I have a conversation with my dad and I'm sitting in front of him in a chair face to face. And it was the first conversation that I've ever had with my dad in my life ever that I had, I had control. He had to listen to me for a minute and we've never sat there and had a conversation like that ever where he wasn't telling me what to do or asking me questions. So it was a surreal moment for me. I I sat there and I said, explain this to us. What's been going on? You know, this is my mom's get out of jail free card. She's finally free. She can leave you now. Like we have proof that you have been cheating on her for the past eight years. And my mom's sitting there crying, saying she's so hurt and devastated. And my dad's still denying it. So I said, well, let me see your phone. And um, he said, fine. So I grabbed his phone and I don't know what I was doing in the phone. I Something took over me. I, I went to recently deleted and I saw the picture of this woman from the Facebook and it was recently deleted. He was still talking to this woman. So, you know, the, the pieces of the puzzle were 
put together. I had my answer and I had left. And my dad bought my mom a ring and took her to Hawaii and they're still together. Still miserable, still together. Oh my goodness. I I just want to say, first of all, I love that you had the strength to do that because thank you. I was very proud easy. of myself. That's not easy to do, just being able to be so strong. But oh my goodness. So is your mum still drinking? No. She she's she still abuses things you know she'll have a sleeping pill and she'll take it before dinner to feel a little loopy and a little silly sometimes she falls asleep in the middle of dinner like it she's still an addict but she doesn't drink yeah so they're really just surviving in a, in, in their same kind of bubble aren't they yeah oh yeah and my mom she's retiring next month and my dad is retired so it'll be interesting to see you know, she tells me, I have these plans. I, I have these plans to travel and go on singles trips and volunteer with animals. And and I have hopes for her. And I'm, I'm supporting her. I'm saying, Mom, you got this. If you need anything, if you want to live with me, if I, I got you, you know. And I will always be there to help her, you know. But it, it took years to to get to this point. I was angry with her for a, a whole year after we got the letter and she wasn't leaving. And I was, I was so angry with her. I said, you can finally go. You spent 50 years in, in prison. And then I would be so angry with my dad. And I would say in your next life, you deserve to come back as like a prisoner of war, the way that you treated my mom. And, you know, I, we would say horrible things to each other, but we're, we're back at a place where we're accepting where we're at and I'm hopeful that she will make some changes in her retirement. Yeah, I guess she is also highly manipulated. Yes. We can say, well, she should just get up and leave, but, you know, I've seen it so many times, women in those sort of very controlled relationships, it's their brain has been molded a different way, you know, it's, difficult to do anything outside of that there's such a sadness to your story and especially Mm -hmm. that theme of you just trying to grab pieces of time with your mom when she was sober and the guilt for not being there in those moments how much compassion do you have for that little girl now oh when I think about that little girl I just want to cry I just you know I just feel so bad for her and my son my oldest looks just like me and I I couldn't imagine scaring him night after night after night and him having to come up and oh what's wrong with mom you know is mom okay I god I could not imagine doing that to him just for one second so yeah when I think about the little girl that was me it it's heartbreaking yeah Absolutely. How are you raising your kids differently? What are you doing differently? Oh, wow. I'm doing everything differently. I I speak kindly to them. I give them hugs. I'm always trying to connect with them. And, you know, my motto is connect before you correct. I, I'm I grew up with such a critical dad and it's it's ingrained in me to be critical about every little thing. So it's a lot of 
changing myself. I have to be less reactive to something that's not that serious. And I, I have to be less critical. And, and I, I'm just so present with my kids because I know how fast it goes. And I am still kind of grieving the relationship that I never got to have with my mom, even though she's still here. And anytime I, I mention that to my mom, you know, I say, our relationship isn't the best. Let's improve it. And she'll say, well, my mom died when I was 30. She was my best friend. I, You never call me. At least I'm alive. And that's very manipulative to me. But, you know, when her mom died when she was 30, it must have been devastating. And that truly, I think, started her depression. I was like three or four at the time. But yeah, I'm raising my kids very differently. And I I'm actually grateful of the childhood that I had because I I get to raise them differently. I, I understand how to do it right because what happened to me was not right. So what I am doing now has to be right. Yeah. It's like just doing the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't easy. it really? I think yeah. I, that's what I think half the time, you know, when you've had that sort of experience, you just say, what what happened to me? Well, I'm just going to flip that. You know, that's kind of yep. what you have to do. What have you done for your own mental health or what realizations or practices have you taken on to create a change in your life? So recently in the past year, I've realized the importance of meditation and I've explored a sound bath. I've actually had a few sessions with uh, Tibetan sound bowls where you lay down in a bowl put on you and they do the sound and you can feel the vibration in the energy in your soul. So I, I feel that that's really been centering and cleansing for me. I've been trying to find out ways to reset my nervous system. I know my brain has been damaged and altered from the trauma as a child. I don't think there's anything I can do about that, but I, you know, I, I'm aware of it. I'm trying to improve myself every day. And I, I'm very, I like to go easy on myself now. I'm not as hard on myself. Yeah. That's so important, isn't it? Just, yeah. just that, just that one thing, because when you're used to somebody being so hard on you, mm-hmm. you learn to be hard on yourself. So just being able to release that is absolutely yeah. huge. And I love the sound sound healing that's oh so good so good you sent me a recent photo shoot of your family and everyone's just really hit home again how much we all present as perfect families and if you're listening to this podcast and you think that everybody else's family is doing so much better than yours I think every family has some level of stuff going on And it's usually a lot more than we think it is. What do you wish for your future and for your family's future? I want to finally see my mom just have a sense of fulfillment in her life. That's what I want to see. And just more healing, more healing for me so I can be a, a great mom and spread that energy into my kids and my husband. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Brooklyn, I truly believe that those of us that are really sensitive souls and who've been through hell and who are changing things for our own kids, we are the healers of the world and you are an incredible healer. You are taking what has happened to you to make 
the world a better place for your kids, for yourself. And those changes that you're making will have a huge impact on so many other people around your family too. We can never underestimate the impact of making the world a more beautiful place just by awareness, just by understanding and love. You're doing such amazing things for your family. Thank you so much for sharing your story so vulnerably today. Well, Dawn, thank you so much. I appreciate the platform. I appreciate what you do every day. And, you know, I always, as a kid and as a teenager, I always wanted to share my story and somehow just get it out there. It's how one person, like, if you are in a home with an alcoholic, it sucks. It really, really sucks. But you are going to learn so much and you're going to be fine. And that's all I want. One person. That would be amazing. So I really appreciate this platform. And I I think you are doing amazing, amazing things. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at My Big Love Project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week.